Hello, and welcome to episode one of SpinalCast. I'm your host, David Stevens, and joining me today as co-host is Rich Sluice. Rich, along with being a wonderful individual, is also a board member for the Morton Cure Paralysis Fund. During today's episode, Rich and I will be interviewing Dr. Ann Parr of the University of Minnesota, in which she is a dedicated spinal cord injury research scientist. This is going to be a pretty interesting conversation, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of SpinalCast. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Ann Parr from the University of Minnesota. We're very excited to have you, so thank you for joining us. Thank welcome. you for having me. And uh, we're going to go ahead and ask you some questions about the research you've been doing and uh, kind of what you've seen in the world and, and uh, what's going on in this SCI community. So um, I figure if you're comfortable with it, we might as well just go ahead and get into yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Perfect. So- I guess my first main question for you is how how did you ever wind up researching spinal cord injury or how did you become affiliated with spinal cord injury in all of your studies and things of that nature? Well, there's really a couple of reasons that I became interested in, in spinal cord injury. Um, I think the primary reason is probably the patients. Um, when I was a medical student and when I was subsequently a resident in, in neurosurgery, um, I actually didn't go into neurosurgery with the idea that I was going to research spinal cord injury. Um, but I, I had one patient in particular that I recall when I was a first year resident, um, a young man who had um, worked on a farm out west and uh, he fell off the um, one of the um, pieces of machinery and unfortunately mm. sustained a, a spinal cord injury. And mm. And I knew at that moment that he wasn't going to be able to inherit his family farm and to take up the family business like he had uh, the family had hoped for him and all those hopes and expectations for him, I think, had just changed in that instant. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of stuck with me over the years. And um, and there were many other patients similar to that. So that was the primary reason, I think. Um, it just seemed really unfair and really yeah. um, unexpected. Um, and then subsequently, I also became interested in spinal cord injury because of the science behind it. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, neurosciences, of course, I think it's the most fascinating thing in the in the world. <laughs> yeah, you know? we don't understand it. Yeah, we appreciate uh, yeah. that. Um, and it's it's just it's so interesting, um, and it just seems like it always has seemed to me that there is a treatment out there. There is something more that we can do. We just don't know what it is yet. Um, and so that sort of uh, led me down that path. So the the main problem kind of posed by spinal cord injury, I think, is is difficult for certain people to understand in your understanding of it. What what would you how would you present the problem um, that spinal cord injuries pose to to those injured? So that's a great question, because I, I think that amongst the average population, there is a poor understanding of what spinal cord injury actually means. Yeah. Um, and so the many people think that spinal cord injury means you can't walk and uh, you're in a wheelchair, but that's really only part of the problem and a very small part of the problem mm. um, for people that are injured in the thoracic region. They mm -hmm. can't walk uh, people that are injured in the cervical region um, often can't move their hands or have limited use of their hands. Um, and the higher you go, you actually lose more and more function. And um, many spinal cord injured patients with high cervical injuries can't breathe on their own. So they need permanent ventilation. 
um, patients with spinal cord injury also lose sensation um, below the level of injury to differing degrees. Um, they lose sexual function. They lose bowel and bladder function. Um, and often they have um, dysregulation of their, which a lot of people don't know about this problem. They have dysregulation of their blood pressure mm. um, and that can be life threatening. And so all of these things are, you know, significant components of, of spinal cord injury. Getting back to your research, um, what was the first big project that you, um, you know, took on when you began your spinal cord research journey? What was the first project that you really kind of got started with? So the first big project that I got started with was um, oh, was back when I was doing my PhD in Toronto. That's when I really started doing spinal cord injury research. Um, and uh, the lab I was in uh, decided to uh, investigate stem cells for spinal cord injury. And stem cells were sort of in their infancy back then. I was in the early 2000s. Um, and if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I'd be a lot farther ahead, you know. Right. Um, but I, I think that I've really watched the the field progress over the last couple of decades, um, which is kind of incredible. Um, but yeah, it was it was a stem cell project. It was transplanting neural stem cells in a rat model of spinal cord injury. Um, but the stem cells really were not one of the big biggest differences is that they weren't very well defined. Because mm -hmm. um, it was only in the 90s that we realized that stem cells actually are present in adult human brain. Mm. And it was always thought that they were just present in embryos and fetuses. And then after we became adults, too bad, we don't make any more neurons in our brains. Turns out that's not true. And it's lucky for all of us. Um, mm. But uh, there's a few areas in the human brain. And then in the 90s, it was learned, it was discovered um, how to grow the cells in a dish. Um, okay. And so that was sort of what brought about the beginning of research into stem cell transplantation for spinal cord injury. And do you think that's exponentially growing as Absolutely. in terms of our knowledge? and Absolutely. Like, you know, some of the things that we've learned are that all neural stem cells aren't the same. Back mm -hmm. then, it was sort of thought that, oh, it's a cell. You know, you can take it from a human brain in a biopsy, for example, and you can grow an addition, it's going to be like the same, but that's not true. I mean, mm. and I guess now that it seems kind of obvious, but I think back then we sort of thought that all the stem cells were the same. Um, but it turns out that if you transplant a brain stem cell into the spinal cord or vice versa, they, they don't really like the environment. Um, they don't grow as well. They don't really do the same things that we want them to do. Um, so it turns out that regional specificity is really important in that's stem cell research. The other thing that's come about is um, iPS cells, and that Pluripotent. is induced pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent. Um, mm -hmm. We'll test that. They're later. very potent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we should hope so. Um, but it's, it's really a, an exciting area of research, and it's something that we do in our lab. And basically what it is, is that... Um, one of the major problems with any kind of transplantation research has been uh, patient matching. You know how if you want a bone marrow donor, you have to go out there and find someone right. who's genetically similar. Um, if you have a twin, that's lucky. If you have a re close relative, that's lucky. But if you don't, you're kind of out of luck, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then for things like kidney transplants or heart transplants, you're on immunosuppressive agents for the rest of your life. Right. right. Um, and so a few years ago. 
this um, Japanese uh, physician, um, uh, uh, researcher, I should, shouldn't say physician, he's a researcher, um, Yamanaka. He actually won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this. Um, and he discovered or invented the iPS cell. And basically, um, one of the things that uh, is known is that you could take one of your cells, your skin cells, or your blood cell, and you could turn back the clock to make it into like an embryonic stem cell. Wow. So basically turn it back to your own cell when you were <laughs> oh. an embryo. And then you can subsequently culture that cell to make any cell type of the entire body. So in theory, I could take your skin and make it into a kidney if you needed a kidney, or I can make it into a heart if you needed a heart. So this is only been discussed. The, the technology for this was only discovered a few years ago. Wow. So it hasn't obviously gotten to the point yet that mm -hmm. we can make new hearts and new kidneys and, and things like that, but it's getting there. Yeah. The science is pointing that way. Yeah. And absolutely. How, far away, how far away is something like that? Maybe 10, 10 years. years. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that, uh, that researchers have gone after is actually AMD, which is um, it's an eye disease mm. um, because they can grow new retinas with this technology. Um, and so it's been applied to that area first. Um, and next, they're going to apply it to spinal cord injury. So there actually is a clinical trial that just started. They've enrolled one patient so far, um, oh. and it's in Japan. Because Japan has, um, in the United States so far, there are quite a few regulations. And there's a reason for regulations, mm -hmm. um, but it's quite restrictive using iPS cells. They have to go through a lot, a lot of hurdles. Japan has kind of taken a different approach to it. And they've um, made it so that there's special exceptions. And so they've accepted their iPS cell banks to allow for these clinical trials to move ahead. Well, so having been involved with the Morton Cure Paralysis Fund my entire life, um, I've always heard stem cell research kind of talked about as like, this is the path forward, this is the path forward. And talking to you, it sounds like stem cell research is still a very heavy part of the research being done. But then hearing things about IPS cells and things mm -hmm. like that, is there is stem cell research still as heavily involved in all of spinal cord research as it is or are new things coming up and people are like well maybe stem cells aren't the solution for spinal cord injuries they're we're finding all these other great things that they do um, but maybe we should start targeting these new avenues outside of stem cell research or am i misunderstanding stem cell research as a no term? <laughs> no i i think i'm really glad that you asked that because um i would really like to be able to emphasize that um, there is not, not unfortunately, there's not going to be one magic bullet or one cure for spinal cord injury. Um, that's not going to happen. going to happen. And I think that most researchers recognize that um, there are every spinal cord injury, first of all, isn't the same. Right. There's right. cervical versus thoracic. Mm -hmm. There's complete versus discomplete or incomplete injuries there. Um, and there are different mechanisms, too. Um, and I think that what's clear to most people is that one size does not fit all and that, um, you know, this era of patient specificity and tailoring the treatment to the patient mm -hmm. rather than have something for everybody. So it's more like a, a, a toolbox, you know, a kit. Yeah. So I think that and I think that 
there are going to be combinatorial therapies as well that are going to work um, that are a combination of different things. So I think that all of the, nobody should put their eggs in one basket. I think that, and so all of the things I've talked about so far today have been, I would say in the realm of, of stem cell research. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's still a huge thing, but I also think that when you're talking about research into anything, you need to make short-term and long-term investment. And if you see something that might help a little bit today, Mm -hmm. that's something worthwhile. But if you see something that's more of an investment that might help 10 or 20 years down the road, then you should also consider investing in that type of research so that you really don't have all your eggs in one basket. And so I think that the stem cell research, while it's moving forward, definitely, you know, um, it moves forward at a slow pace. And there's a lot of things about this clinical trial that is going on in Japan that I'm sure are not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, hopefully they'll get positive results. But I think there are going to be some snags along the way and things that they need to tweak um, about the research. But it's a start. Right. Right. Um, On the other hand, the other thing, you know, that I'd like to bring up is epidural stimulation, because that's a another avenue of research that um, I'm undertaking and others are undertaking. And I think that's the short term thing, um, the thing that can help patients today. Yeah. However, have to be a little bit careful, though, because I think people, some people are interpreting all of these amazing findings with epidural stimulation as being the answer, mm-hmm. but it's not. Mm. It's not perfect. There are a lot of things that epidural stimulation does, but there's also a lot of things that epidural stimulation does not do. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. So epidural stimulation um, is basically... It's a surgical procedure where you have an electrical device implanted into your body. There is a paddle that goes over your spinal cord, but over the lining that surrounds your spinal cord. There's a wire that comes and there's a battery pack that goes under your skin. Um, But it's a it's a a pretty good treatment. So and it's easy to as a surgeon, it's easy to put in. Mm low complication rate go go gadget no more pain <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. so yeah so um so it was discovered about 10 years ago a little bit more serendipitously be um that this can actually restore volitional movement after spinal cord injury so it turns out that and it's not fully understand how it works but there's some pretty good theories and we sort of know how it works and basically most people with spinal cord injury, it's actually very rare to have a true transection, which means like cutting the spinal cord. So even in patients that have no motor or sensory function, zero below the level of injury, it's rarely a transection. It's usually a crush. So what that means though, is that there are still these nerves that cross the area of injury. The problem is there's not enough of them to generate any kind of significant response. But what if you could somehow make them more powerful? Right. Those few nerves that are remaining. So the thinking is that when you put in this epidural stimulator, you um, basically provide a very low level of stimulation Mm -hmm. so that the nerves down there need less stimulation to be active. And you can kind of think about it where... Let's say, you know, that light bulb over there, let's say I have a switch over here, okay, and it turns the light bulb on and off. Let's say that the wire is going to the light bulb, I cut half of them. So now there's not 
quite enough power to turn the light. So I flick the switch and there's nothing, right? But let's say that you hook up a battery to that light so that you provide sort of a low level of electricity, but not enough to turn the light on, but all of a sudden the switch works again. Mm. So that's kind of how you can think about booster. Exactly. Exactly. It's a little more complicated than that. I'm I'm kind of simplifying it a little bit. It helps me. I I wouldn't have had any understanding without that kind of explanation. So. So, yeah. So we have some clinical trials ongoing um, here in Minneapolis. We're one of the only centers actually that has clinical trials ongoing. So we're really excited about that. And we've had some really good results. Awesome. Um, Almost. Well, actually, every single patient we've enrolled. Um, and I think there's about 18 or so enrolled so far, um, but every single patient we've enrolled has had benefit. Um, they've been able to, and these are patients that some of them haven't moved anything below the waist or for a decade, and now they can have some movement. Yeah, um, it's, it, it is really amazing to see, but I will caution you though, that it's not perfect, right? Cause you're not regrowing the spinal cord. We have had some, uh, cases very exciting where even after a while, even after you turn off the stimulator, there's still some volitional movement wow. there, wow. which means there has to be some neuroplasticity where the nerves are reorganizing themselves, They're which learning. is really yeah. exciting. Yeah. How often do you have to change the battery? Um, it depends how often you use it. It's a great question. Oh, okay. um, some of the newer stimulators have rechargeable batteries, um, but yeah, it's... It, could be every few years, could be longer or shorter, depending on, on so, how often it's used. As far as using it then, so they, they select when it's on and off. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And they also select, so one of the big things that isn't known um, is uh, exactly how to optimize the stimulators. So this is one of the big areas of research right now is actually how to, um, because the stimulators, they have different uh electrodes on them and you can turn them on and off. Um, and you can also change, um, the frequency because it's this, a stimulation pattern. It's like a wave. So you can change the amplitude, the frequency, the pulse width. So it's pretty much an, um, it's pretty much, um, an infinite number. (laughs) It's not quite infinite, but it's close, you know, it's, it's, there's three trillion or something like this different settings. Yes. So we have to figure out better ways of optimizing these. Um, but as I said, though, it's also, it's not, it's not a cure, um, because these patients are not recovering sensation. Um, they're recovering motor function, Mm -hmm. which is not a small thing. They're improving their bowel and bladder function. And we don't know yet whether that's because we're actually improving the bowel or bladder or because they're more able to, for example, their trunkal sure. stability and things like that are better. They, their bowel evacuation times have re- are reduced significantly in these yeah. patients. Quality of life is improved. The transfers are easier. Mm-hmm. They're reducing their spasticity. Um, all these different things that, they're, it's that the, the stimulator is helping. So it's definitely 100% this is like the thing right now really right. to be excited about that I think many more patients could benefit from this technology. It's uh, and I've seen like even over the last few years, like the number of patients that are getting implanted is is going up exponentially. And I think it's going to continue to go up exponentially. Well, so that that leads me to a, an interesting question. So going back to something you mentioned earlier is that there's kind of the immediate their research for immediate solution that give, you know, an immediate benefit. And then there's that long term research. And this sounds a little bit more like that immediate benefit. It's not the 
it's not going to solve anybody's ability to not be able to walk or anything like that. Um, but uh, uh, well, there are patients though that are walking now. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. That's it's not huge. everybody, but there are, and some patients they need um, like a, a standing device. Right. But there are patients that are walking again. After well, that's, that's awesome. Wow. As you can tell, we had quite the conversation with Dr. Ampar. So much so that we actually decided to split it into two episodes. Part two will drop one month from today, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And actually, if you're watching us on YouTube, right now might not be a bad time to hit that subscribe and bell icon so you know when new episodes drop. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, eh, you could always throw us a follow. We wanted to thank Dr. Parr again for being our first guest on SpinalCast. It was an absolute blast to have her on set. And thanks to Rich for being my co-host. All right, well, hold tight, and uh, we'll see you at part two.